Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of Always Ready, the program dedicated to encouraging the church to discern truth from lie, right from wrong, and right from mostly right. And ultimately, we want to look at the world around us through the lens of Scripture. There are a lot of truth claims being made every day, but only one truth remains, and that is found in God's holy word. My name is David Lohman, my friends call me Dilo, and I am your host and fellow pilgrim in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining me today for Always Ready. I want you to be informed, and I want you to be entertained. But most importantly, I want you to be always ready. Today is Tuesday, April 8th, 2014, and welcome to edition 2, volume 34 of Always Ready, and welcome to the new Multinoma.edu studios. The best way to reach me if you have any questions or thoughts or comments is on Twitter, at DLO Always Ready, at DLO Always Ready. Or you can always just send me an email, alwaysready at kpdq.com. That is alwaysready at kpdq.com. Well, we have just begun a week-long study. In fact, two full weeks on church history. Now, this week, we're going to take a look at the history itself. And then next week, we're going to take a look at how history or church history, especially the Reformation, impacted the church as we know it today. But not only the church. We want to take a look at how uh, church history has impacted culture, politics, society, preaching, and the way the church actually operates. Uh, yesterday, we started our discussion on church history with, uh, with um, Michael Haken from Southern Seminary, and we dealt with just the first three or four centuries of the early church, and we looked at the early church fathers, some very interesting things. And one of the things that we noted as in our discussion was going on was that so much of the uh, names that we are familiar with, whether it be Polycarp um, or whether it be Justin Martyr or even Augustine, many of them got their name, in a sense, their popularity, based on having to fight heresies that were already infiltrating the church. Now, one would think, boy, it can't, I can't believe that the church would fall into such difficulty and deal with heresy so early on. That's just one, two, or three hundred years. But those familiar with Scripture, reading the book of Hebrews and Galatians and Romans— and First and Second Timothy, you'll discover that just within a handful of years of a church coming together, there are already infiltration of heresies. Now, part of what we do on Always Ready is deal with some of these heresies and how to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And so yesterday we began our discussion on, on church history, and we took a look at just the first couple centuries. We took a look at some of the names that you might be familiar with and possibly some that you uh, are not. Um, we looked at the life of Athanasius, and we took at the life of Justin Martyr. Um, for those familiar with the name Martyr, um, it was the name given to those who had given their lives for the sake of the gospel, because like many in the first handful of centuries in the church, Justin Martyr was put to death for, uh, for the gospel. Today, um, in just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah Biblical Seminary, and we're going to talk a little bit about the modern uh, or the Middle Ages and the ages leading up to the Reformation. Tomorrow, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Daniel uh, Vurhis. He is simply one of the very best experts on the life and the impact of Martin Luther. On Thursday, we talked to David Hall. We'll be talking to David Hall about the life of John Calvin. And then next week, we're talking to Michael Horton, Stephen J. Lawson, John Barber, and Joel Beek all on this idea of the impact of the early church. But to get that going, um, well, we need to invite you to Always Ready University. So to, to get it going, today, my very special guest is going to be Dr. from uh, Multnomah University, 
Dr. Daniel Skalberg. Dr. Skalberg is an expert, in fact, is a chair in, in the history department at Multnomah. And we're joined right now by Dr. Skalberg. Now, am I pronouncing that name right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Awesome. I, I feel like I'm uh, crossing the platform <laughs> all over again. Well, I hope my so. Diploma. I, I've been trying to think for these two weeks that I'm dealing with church history, I needed something to kind of introduce this concept of uh, of this uh, university aspect to the show Always Ready. So we've started Always Ready University. It seems to make sense. Now, I'm not sure at what point you joined us, but yesterday I had a phenomenal guest by the name of Dr. Michael Haken from uh, Southern Seminary, and he dealt with some of those uh, early church fathers. Right. Uh, we talked about everyone from Polycarp to uh-huh. Augustine slash Augustine. Yeah. And we dealt with the great controversy of how to pronounce the name. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Uh, yeah. 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 So, you know, the, the smart people say Augustine, I guess. Yeah. Um, but where we left off was was the life of Augustine. We dealt with the Pelagian controversy mm-hmm. and all that, and we kind of wanted to to uh, um, kind of get going with you from the point of Augustine's death, which is ironically also the same year that it's that it, we are told that um, Rome fell. I mean, they're kind of listed mm-hmm. at roughly that same time. So you have the death of Augustine and the death of Rome, uh, all all taking place in the early four hundreds. Um, what really precipitated that fall of Rome? Uh, well, to be to be more accurate, uh, it's uh, uh, Rome is um, uh, is laid siege to. Uh, uh, it doesn't fall uh, at the time of Augustine's death. It still has about another uh, half a century to go uh, before it's uh, sort of the collapse of the western half of the Roman Empire uh, coming in 476. And that was the Goths, right? Yeah, yeah. So you have a series of invasions, uh, uh, Gothic invasions. You know, my ancestors, as I like to say, uh, uh, <laughs> the Ostrogoths, you know, uh, which were, come from uh, the Scandinavian peninsula. I might, you can tell my last name, Skalberg, is a Swedish name. So I, I jokingly refer to it. It's, it's my, uh, my ancestors' big moment uh, in, in global history uh, <laughs> to help overthrow the Roman Empire in the West. But, but that's what it is. It's actually a, um, a Roman uh, political dominance on the Iberian Peninsula, what today we think of as kind of Western Europe, uh, draws to a close. The Roman Empire still lives on, uh, even after 476, in a kind of uh, a reconfigured uh, Eastern Empire that we know as Byzantine, uh, Eastern Greek-speaking Empire, but that's still a kind of continuity in terms of uh, a Roman rule of the Eastern Mediterranean. But, now, now uh, I had read that it was um, a, a hundred brutal years that the Goths weren't exactly the uh, the, the nicest uh, conquerors, um, to, to, to say the least. That it was uh, that uh, the economy has hurt. That that it wasn't a great time in the time of Rome. Yeah, I suppose they were equal as equally brutal as the Romans. Yeah. You know, that's kind of Augustine's view on it. You know, if you reread the City of God, uh, there published AD four ten, he. Um, uh, he he likes to talk about both the Romans, uh, which he is one, uh, though he's a North African uh, uh, version of of a Roman, uh, but uh, but at least trained within the sense of Roman civilization, uh, brought up in it. Um, but he can be quite complimentary about ancient Roman civilization as well as uh, non-Roman uh, uh, Teutonic civilization. And at times, he suggests that. That the uh, the Goths behave uh, in times more gentlemanlike manner uh, than the Romans, but I think what he's getting at is that there is brutality uh, and war crimes uh, committed on, <laughs> on both sides. 
And so with with Augustine, we get uh, yeah, we get. Uh, you just think, wow, of Augustine's influence on on uh, our tradition here. Uh, uh, sort of a European American tradition. You know, it's Augustine who comes up with the idea of a just war theory that probably wouldn't be very popular among American presidential administrations. You know, uh, where he's you know he's saying you know no torture allowed ever. It's not uh, we have to treat the enemy. Uh, we have to show respect to the enemy. You know, they're 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 human beings made in the image of God. Uh, we can't sack their sacred places. We can't. It doesn't matter that they're Christian or non. You know, if they're pagan sacred places, we have to protect their property and uh, so on. So it's a very, I suppose, from our 21st century perspective, and uh, Augustine's view of uh, of warfare is is very enlightened and and at times ahead of our own uh, uh, sort of. Uh, a patriotic yeah. political assumptions about the use of war. Yeah, uh, so. Michael Haken, when we were talking to him yesterday, I mean, he, literally he said between from from the time of John to the from, from the time of John to John, from John the Apostle to uh, till we get to about John Calvin and Martin Luther uh, era, that uh, Augustine was easily the most significant and important yeah. character, theologically speaking. And we'll get we we kind of dealt a lot with uh, Augustine yesterday, but right after the death of Augustine, something takes place. Um, there is a, a, a council that meets, and then there's this schism. And that's where I want to spend um, our time after this first break. We're going to go to a really quick break now. We're going to come back, and we're going to talk about another word that is always mispronounced or is debated. Chalcedon? Chalcedon. See, this, this whole thing, you're going to get used to this, by the way. I needed to apologize up front. You know you're going to get used to the fact that I uh, will deal with mispronunciations on a regular basis. So we're going to be coming right back with my guest, Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah Biblical Seminary, and discuss history right here on Always Ready. Well, welcome back to Always Ready. Uh, this is Dave Lohman. My friends call me Dilo, and we are talking to Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah. And uh, Dr. Skullberg, um, so we got right to this, so I had that first question. Before I even had a chance for you to kind of introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing at the seminary, uh, what you do at the school, and a little bit of your history. I know that you are the chair um, of the history department there, but give us a little bit of background. Uh, yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, uh, as you said, I'm the chair of the history department. It's actually the history department of the undergraduate college of oh, okay, the university. Great. So I'm not a faculty in the seminary. Okay, good. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a um, uh, a history chair of our undergraduate uh, degree bachelor's degree program in history. So I uh, I recruit faculty. I uh, outline the uh, the program, uh, develop the requirements, course outcomes, uh, degree program outcomes for our Bachelor of Arts degree in history at Multnomah University. And my, um, my Ph.D. is in history uh, from the University of Oregon, and uh, my specialization is in, uh, or my research specialization is 17th century uh, French ecclesiastical history, post-Tridentine uh, Catholic Reform, uh, Council of Trent uh, stuff, and mm. I, uh, my broader uh, preparation work uh, is in uh, medieval uh, Reformation and early modern European history. Uh, and then I have a Master of Arts degree from Wheaton College in uh, theological studies and church history. Then there's uh, no doubt we'll be bringing you back, because one of the discussions I'm planning on having sometime in May 
is the um, is the post Reformation issues mainly involving the Council of Trent. So yeah, great. Uh, that <laughs> sounds like the perfect time. Well, we're, we're, I want to talk just real quickly. Um, many of the, the the when I look at the fifth and sixth centuries, it seems uh-huh. like it was one council after another. Sure. Uh, but yeah. the one that seemed to to really comes out with if it, is it Chalcedon? Is that how? Yeah, Chalcedon. Yeah, mm-hmm. Chalcedon, because it really just reaffirmed the the Council of Nicaea, which yeah. we talked about yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly. Uh, uh, sort of seeks to maybe tweak and reiterate uh, the decision of what you know that what's called the Nicene Constantinopolitan uh, Creed, or sometimes the Athanasian Creed, which defines the uh, the relationship of God the Son to God the Father and its orthodox definition. And of course, it has a triune definition. You know, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. You know, so uh, yeah, and then of course. Uh, uh Chalcedon focuses in uh, uh more uh christologically uh in terms of its uh, uh you know the 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 idea of the two natures in Christ that Christ is both fully god and fully man. Yeah, and one of the uh, things we explored yesterday was that many of these councils if not all of them were put together brought together to uh, deal with uh, particular heresies or ideologies. Yeah, yeah. So this would be like a monophysticism and um, yeah. uh, Polinarianism, things yeah. like that, Nestorianism, th- all these long isms that that people don't know what the original heresies were, but they they are familiar with the the idea of, of Jesus having two natures. That he's you know he is not just part man and part God. Right. He's not right. a man that becomes God, uh, but that he is uh, has two natures. Um, both fully God and, and fully man, and and we give big names to those sort of things. But but mm-hmm. the, what that council did is really kind of explore and just say this is what is is true. This is what we believe. This right. is right. what is accurate. And then you have a whole bunch of these other ones. But then uh, since we you know we're trying to hit some of the biggest ideas in history, mm-hmm. I don't think that we can escape getting before we get to the eighth century and the late seventh century to deal with the creation and the spread of Islam. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean that has to be the yeah. the biggest event that is that is uh, the 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 church had to deal with for hundreds of years that followed. Yeah, well it's 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 absolutely profound in its impact, you know, uh, until the the rise of Islam starting, you know, in the late 6th century and then going on in terms of its spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Uh uh, until the rise of Islam, you know, Rome isn't doesn't have a lot of significant threat in terms of its its uh, African and uh, particularly its African uh, boundaries in the in the Mediterranean world. Um, the uh, you know until the rise of Islam, most of the Christians on the face of uh, face of the earth were living in North Africa, uh, and so the the rise of and spread of Islam will have a very very profound impact on on reshaping the religious affections. Of the African Mediterranean world, uh, and then of course uh, uh, Islam, in terms I'm talking about, or it's really its political influence, uh, uh, its ability to to uh, spread across uh, into um, uh, into uh, southern Spain uh, and across the Pyrenees, and on into the eighth century, uh, where finally uh, the Franks are able to turn away. Uh, the the Spanish Moors, the Muslims, both out of Spain, the Spanish Muslim Kingdom, uh, there at the Battle of Tours, uh, Poitiers Tours, in the 722 to 732, you finally have a check on the rise of Islam and its political power and influence. Uh, but then uh, uh, there's its impact in the East, uh, eventually uh, all the way up into the to the 16th century, where uh, 
the Ottoman Turkish Empire is knocking on the the gates of the city of Vienna uh, in the days of uh, the Emperor Charles V in the 16th century. So, so it uh, all the way up until the 16th century. Uh, 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 Islam uh, really uh, becomes the premier uh, political and economic power. Is I'm talking about Muslim civilization becomes the uh, uh, the zenith uh, champion of political power and uh, and kind of establishing an economic monopoly on the Trans-Eurasian steppes now, up, up until uh, until Europe is able to go global through its transatlantic and trans-Pacific trade. Now, is it is it fair to say that initially? Um, the the Western Church um, was in a sense pacifistic in its response, and um, oh yeah, the, and, yeah, early and the, on, you know, well before the yeah. Crusades even started. So when people will come around and say, "Oh, those no good evil Christians attacking the Muslims," it was it was a long time before the Church or the the Western society responded to the onslaught. And Islam, is it, is it also fair to say? And I guess you can answer both at the same time. Is it fair to say that that Islam spread? Um, not through a gospel message, but through the sword. Um, I would say it's uh, not fair to stereotype. So yeah. what you have is uh, you have uh, certainly a political expansion that at times was violent, uh, but at times uh, was much less violent in an effort to sort of able to, willing to, to maintain local expression of indigenous culture. So, and so you have examples where in Ethiopia, uh, the Ethiopian Church, while while the uh, the political regime uh, becomes stable through its uh, its Muslim uh, leadership, uh, the the Ethiopian Church is tolerated, uh, and and in, even in, uh, in when when the when the uh, in the East uh, among Greek speaking Christians, uh, uh, when their territories come under Muslim rule, many Greek speaking Christians are able to work out a kind of uh, live and let live uh, kind of uh, local agreement with a with like a modicum of toleration for Eastern Christendom, which is one of the reasons why you have all of those councils <laughs> that come after the Fourth Council, where the Eastern Church is is trying to deal with the uh, not so much the political threat but the ideological uh, threat of Islam, and then trying to shape a kind of Christianity that could be sensitive uh, to local Muslim rule, uh, thus. Uh, the iconoclastic controversy and uh, and so on in terms of the concerns of the Eastern Church. So it's it's a kind of a mixed bag mm-hmm. where you do have uh, at times a violent uh, effort to to suppress or eliminate uh, Christians like you do in Northwestern Africa, or you can at the same time same time uh, uh, you know eighth ninth centuries efforts to get along with the uh, with the Christian community. So it's kind of a mixed bag. Now, is it uh, is it also? I'm just and this is a, a question that's just coming off the top of my head, so it could be completely off. But it seems like roughly the same time the church at this time is also being more centralized um, in Rome. Yeah, the church is in its governance is moving north, and it will be moving up the Iberian Peninsula, and even as we move on through the Middle Ages, it tends to even. Uh, as Henri Perrin, the great uh, French-Belgian historian, who's a medievalist, uh, writing in the 20th century, the greatest of the uh, of the French medievalists, uh, who wrote about uh, uh, the tendency for the rise of Islam in the Mediterranean to create a kind of Muslim lake where there had been a Roman lake uh, prior to it, so that uh, tended to cut off uh, uh, the European orientation towards the Mediterranean and Europe's interests moved north. 
uh, more into the Baltic region. He's talking about its economic influence and interaction. But that being said, even in you know, the ninth century in the middle of the Carolingians, uh, Carolingian merchants are trading internationally uh, and using Muslim merchants as a go-between. So, you know, remember, it's the ancient Romans who, who pioneered the trade with Asia uh, through the Trans-Eurasian steppes, what today we'd call Afghanistan, and et cetera. So, you know, the great overland route that the ancient Romans pioneered to trade with Asia. Europe was well aware of Asia's goods, its exotic goods, its spices, its fine papers, and it wanted those luxury goods, and it uh, relied, with the rise of Islam, then it relies on uh, on the Middle East as a kind of go-between on uh, the merchants, and uh, therefore Muslim uh, civilization uh, grows very prosperous off of its ability to act as an entrepot of goods as the middlemen that are able to charge uh, uh, tariff duties and custom duties on the trade between the European West and the Asian East. So does this centralization of the church then also give rise to um, the, uh, the, to popery, to, to the, po- oh, yeah. the Pope yeah, the in Rome taking more the, control? The Roman bishop, yeah, the significance of the Roman bishop becomes, of course, it's initially, and that's probably what you were maybe hinting at earlier when, you, when we were talking about the collapse of Roman influence in the West, uh, in France and Italy and uh, Spain. Uh, uh, well, when with Rome withdraws from uh, from Rome, literally the city, uh, the city's still there, <laughs> uh, and most of the people living in it are mostly Christians. Uh, and uh, so the uh, the church leadership, since the political leadership, the traditional political leadership is withdrawn, the church leadership becomes responsible for maintaining that culture, that language, those customs. I'm talking about Ro- Latin and Roman law, etc., uh, uh, that, uh, that Western uh, Roman Christians, of course, cherished. Uh, and it becomes the Church's job to maintain those Latin Roman customs and Latin Roman values and Latin Roman education. Uh, and uh, now it's the Pope, uh, the pap- uh, but I'm thinking the Papal Curia, not, not an individual, but... No. But the, the administration of the Church in Rome inherits the job and therefore becomes much more vital and much more important in terms of a, as a kind of center uh, for, uh, for, um, for European administration. And that's, that's a perfect place for us to take another quick break. But we'll, just so you know, when we come back, we want to talk about about 800. We're looking at the uh, life of Charlemagne and this beginning of what is called the Holy Roman Empire. But how does, it, how does that work itself out in terms of... Uh, future schisms, and then some characters I want to discuss. There are just some amazing people that come along, Thomas Aquinas, um, uh, William Tyndale, and John Wycliffe as leading up to the time of the, uh, the Great Reformation and John Hus and, and, and the rest of those. So hang on um, just for a minute. We'll be right back with my guest, Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah University as we discuss church history from, August, from Augustine to John Calvin, right here on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. Uh, this is Dave Lohman. My guest is Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah University. And sir, we kind of left off right at the, um, the time of the what is called the birth, in a sense, of the Holy Roman Empire, even though yeah. there's no such thing as putting exact dates on these things. Right, so. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and even what in the world is the Holy Roman Empire? But, you know, as Voltaire said in the 18th century, reflecting back on the Holy Roman Empire, he said it was 
neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Uh, and so, <laughs> but but doesn't it have a lot to do with the fact that it was it was at that time though where the Pope declared that somebody was the king, yeah, so he yeah, showed power uh, over the political side of things. Yeah, that's at least that's the uh, right. The Roman Church is trying to um, to cement an alliance. And I, what you're referring to here is the uh, the December 25th, 800 A.D. crowning of the Emperor Charlemagne, uh, King of the Franks, uh, in Rome uh, on Christmas Day, with with Rome giving him the imperial crown. You know, and so symbolically, even though literally there, you know, there isn't. It's not the resurrection of the Roman Empire in the West, but in it, a kind of a symbolic image, it is. Uh, and what it so while it doesn't reestablish the old Roman Empire, but what it does do is create a really strong alliance between the Roman Catholic faith, uh, headquartered in the Italian peninsula, uh, and the um, uh, and then the northern European power that is the number one northern European power at the time, which is the Frankish Empire. And so it, its territories include what today would be the Low Countries, northern Germany, northwestern Germany, the Low Countries, uh, northern and central France, um, Switzerland, Austria, approximately those those regions, and so so Rome is cementing an alliance uh, with a strong northern European power. And it's very very important because um, sometimes we forget that uh, that uh, Europe was not evangelized overnight. Uh, it took a long time uh, for Christianity and what I like to call the Second Great Age of Christian Mission uh, to uh, to evangelize. Uh, among these many, many different European tribes with their languages, and so, so it's not until uh, it's not until the ninth century that Bur- uh, Burgundy is uh, is completely evangelized. It's um, uh, uh, it's kind of hit and miss. You know, most of the Pyrenees don't even see its first Christian missionary until the the twelfth century. Uh, uh, so it's uh, so so Rome is certainly looking for. Uh, uh, political alliances in order to uh, to uh, to further uh, its ability to uh, uh, to to reach Europe uh, Europeans with uh, with Christianity. So this is also a a good political yeah, uh, decision. He, you know, Rome doesn't have a uh, the, the Pope doesn't have a daughter to give in in marriage. That's exactly so. right. The Pope has a kingdom. It's called the the yeah, papal states. But, exactly. Yeah, the papal states are, are uh, the result of a gift of Pepin, who was a, a Frankish uh, king. Uh, who in uh, uh, the middle of the 8th century uh, gives to uh, the Roman bishop uh, uh, a donation of land. It's like a, like a gift of land, which is typical at the time. It's how, how feudal bonds and feudal alliances are formed through gift-giving. Uh, and so uh, uh, Pepin gives lands that he's inherited in central Italy uh, to the Roman bishop. And in that one act, the Roman bishop now wears two hats. He's He's not no longer just the, he still is, he remains the, of course, the vicar of Christ in the Catholic Church, that is the Bishop of Rome, but he is also now uh, the head of a temporal state. He he wasn't seeking it, but he became, uh, with the gift, he has uh, temporal, uh, he has lands that he has to administer temporarily. It's a country about 150 miles long and about 50 miles wide. So um, he's got to do something with it. Uh, so uh, yeah, so he's looking for politi- the Roman uh, the bishop is looking for political allies. 
Yeah, and so, uh, and this is one of the reasons I'm doing this week on on history, especially um, why I f- I find what you're talking about and the, the era that we're talking about important. There is this almost this whole idea that from the you know in, in the modern church today that like when when the apostle John died, there weren't any Christians until Martin Luther came along. Oh, yeah, and and right. it's really frustrating because you know you go through this and most people are not even familiar with some of the the, the great church leaders, and that's yeah. why I kind of want to spend almost the rest of our time together. Kind of looking at some of them, because I think that's important. Um, one of my favorite that I, for, I don't know how I ended up with this biography about somebody that I've never met anybody else that even knows the name of Gerhard Grota, which I'm not oh, even yeah. sure that's pronounced. Yeah. But what an influential yeah, character that nobody, you know, people are, are familiar with Thomas Aquinas, but but Grota's work and his life was 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 really powerful. And, and not that I necessarily want to, to talk about him, but to say that there was some amazing um, things going on at that time, and and I want to jump if we can, just a handful of centuries, and get to yeah. um, from from Augustine to Thomas Aquinas, um, mm-hmm. the probably the next great thinker that the church today might be familiar with. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I I love the medievals in term. You know, I, I just uh, enjoy the uh, the theological discourse, is what we call scholasticism, sometimes high scholasticism, and the great theology that comes out. Of the Middle Ages, and unfortunately, sometimes in in all of our modernity, we sometimes stereotype it as a kind of a age in which you know all they all the theologians can do is be concerned about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Uh, but you know that's the old stereotype. Uh, but uh, but yeah, medieval theology is very rich. It's dealing with very very important matters of Christian faith in a, in a, a very integrative model, and that's kind of the, the next step. You're referring to to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and his great uh, systematic theology. So what Aquinas is doing, he's trying to take the best scholarship of the day, and I'm not talking, uh, and I don't mean Christian scholarship, just the scholarship wherever it is to be found. So the uh, the Aristotelianism of the Greeks and the Aristotelianism reinterpreted by Muslim scholars like Averroes, uh, and so it's. Um, uh, at a time in which Europe had kind of lost its a knowledge of its ability to work with the Greek language, uh, Muslim scholars preserve uh, the ancient Greek scholarship and then translate it into Latin uh, for the West uh, so that uh, Western scholarship can kind of become reacquainted uh, with Aristotelian Greek scholarship. So what Aquinas' great vision, and unfortunately I wish more Western Christians knew about this, uh, but Aquinas' great vision is to, uh, is to create a, a kind of Christian scholarship that's fully integrated, that, takes, that views the study of the world in which we live as the study of God's world, and so nothing's taboo, you know. I remember when it, when I was growing up, there were sometimes people would discourage me. You know, they'd say things like, "Oh, don't go to university and study anthropology; you'll, you'll lose your faith." You know. Uh, and so, uh, uh, but Aquinas would have none of that kind of thinking if he were alive today. He would say, "Go to university and study anthropology. Study study man, uh, because man is." the creation of God. So, so what Aquinas does is he really lays a wonderful platform uh, for the study of what today we call the sciences, uh, the social sciences and the natural sciences, and this doing this systematic work. And because the idea in Aquinas' mind, as much as we know the particular things of this world, we'll know that much more about the God that created them. Yeah, and which I guess then leads. I'm sorry. Um, um, I, I I almost wish we could spend a whole show on on Aquinas, 
uh, only because I think the importance um, and the impact is uh, is so prevalent today. But I, I did want to address. I kind of brought up uh, Grota's name because um, mm-hmm. a lot of people are familiar with one of his. I wouldn't. I don't say the word student or followers. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Thomas Akempis. Right. And right. if it wasn't for Grota's teachings. Uh, we may not know who Thomas Akempis is. Yeah, it's exactly the uh, Gerhard Grota and the Brethren in the Common Life, Thomas Akempis. Yeah, this is a, uh, it's, it's a, again, it's, it's just another, uh, as we trace the evolution of, of medieval theology and late medieval theology, you know, David Knowles, the great British scholar, uh, wrote a wonderful book titled The Evolution of Medieval Thought. And so, so as, uh, as we move on into the late medievals, um, uh, the late medieval scholarship, uh, whether it's uh, Grota or Thomas Akempis or William of Ockham, uh, uh, and, and then other figures that appear like Wycliffe and Johann Hus a little bit later, uh, will um, will really want to um, uh, get uh, really also want to reemphasize the kind of one's relationship with God apart from sort of the institutional organization of the Church. Obviously, by the late Middle Ages. Rome uh, is very successful at doing what it's done, which is creating a kind of central bureaucracy, uh, a central administration uh, for the Church. And, you know, with that, uh, it, it, it's not unique to Rome. It could happen with any denomination. You know, as the denomination matures, uh, there are structures that come into place that some people sort of just view the organization, that the organization becomes the kind of end in and of itself, where the late medieval mystics, like Thomas Akempis and the Brethren of the Common Life, uh, become they want to restore uh, the, not only the person of Christ, uh, but the personality of Christ uh, and the intimate uh, relationship of Christ and the believer. They really want to restore that in practice uh, to medieval Christianity uh, so that it moves away from its more structural, more sacramental, more highly organized ways of going about spirituality. So spiritual pers- or personal spirituality is renewed and reemphasized. The brethren in the common life associated with these figures you've just referenced are uh, lay people uh, who devote themselves to Christian work. Uh, brethren in the common life uh, create schools, free schools for uh, elementary education for children, uh, because they're, they're lay, lay Catholics who want to devote themselves to Christian good and social justice and improving literacy. And uh, it's Martin Luther, of all people, who will get his, uh, his earliest education at the Bre- uh, Brethren in the Common Life School. He's strongly influenced by the mystical uh, uh, theology, yeah. mystical and practical. It's, when I say mystical, I don't mean an impersonal mysticism. I mean a very practical, personal, applicational Christian mysticism. Yeah, and yeah. and we're gonna go, we're gonna go to a break, and we're gonna, in a second we're gonna come right back. We're gonna talk about John Wycliffe and William Tyndale. But I have one last thing to talk about Grodin. I was reading a biography, and it said that he would bring small, especially homeless young men to yeah. his his house in order to yeah. uh, you know he'd feed them and and share the gospel and teach them, and uh, he, he he had these big barbecues and. And he think you know the, the the person joked that you know you know that's where the Baptist came from and they have these yeah. big barbecues <laughs> and but but he was it was it was a way to share the gospel with the community at their yeah. at right at hand so anyway I'm talking to Dr Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah uh, University when we come back we're going to finish up we're going to talk about two characters primarily John Wycliffe William Tyndale and if we have time maybe a little Jan Hus as we finish up our walk through the Middle Ages of uh, church history right here 
on Always Ready. Welcome back to Always Ready. My name is Dave Lohman. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Skalberg of Multnomah University. He is the history chair there, and we are talking kind of the, the era of what we are sometimes known as the Middle Ages, and we are jumping ahead to the last um, couple hundred years before the time of Martin Luther, in fact, leading right up to Martin Luther. And um, um, my son, who uh, uh, part of a classical conversations homeschool program, just did a... Uh, a, uh, a little um, five-minute or so segment or teaching thing on the life of John Wycliffe, a guy born right in the or living right in the midst of the Hundred Years' War, and yet um, his significance cannot be understated. Uh, yeah, yeah. John Wycliffe is a good, the great Oxford scholar uh, there uh, at Modlin College, Oxford University, uh, that same college that uh, C.S. Lewis would find himself as a member of. Uh, in the 20th century, uh, yeah, uh, William of uh, or um, uh, John Wycliffe uh, was a 14th century uh, Oxford University academic, uh, taught theology, taught the liberal arts, uh, and uh, by the way, the liberal arts was pioneered uh, by uh, medieval universities, uh, uh, and uh, was the foundation. Liberal arts were the foundation for their curriculum, the study of what's called the the study of the three and the study of the, the study of the three arts and the four sciences. Uh, or the study of the seven, as they called it, or what what we call the liberal arts. Um, but uh, yeah, he's a champion of scholastic uh, education, and uh, and certainly as a Christian scholar, uh, very interested in uh, in the the church that he loved, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and uh, uh, attempted to initiate uh, a reform uh, of that church, which he felt had grown. Uh, Overly institutionalized uh, and uh, less nimble uh, because of that, and less personal, and really wanted to had a burden for uh, uh, for uh, having the end not be the organization, but the uh, but the you know uh, the the organic union that believers uh, have in in Christ. So so he came up with a number of uh, ideas, uh, some controversial, some less controversial, uh, but uh, one, for example, is he. Uh, he negotiated with John of Gaunt, who was the crown prince of England, to strip the Roman Catholic Church of its monastic lands because he felt that the church had grown uh, materialistically corrupt, and he wanted to sort of re, uh, take, take the, the money-making side out of, out of church ministry in the hopes that that would uh, restore a proper motivation uh, for ecclesiastical ministry. And then he also wanted to—this is what we most of us tend to remember, is that his— his effort to translate some of the liturgy, uh, the formal Sunday worship of the Church, uh, uh, into uh, the vernacular language, in his case, English, you know, the vernacular language of, of the island there. So uh, while Wycliffe doesn't translate the entire Bible into English, he translates portions of it, that is, the portions that would be familiar to to anyone uh, in the audience out there who's a Roman Catholic Christian or grew up a Roman Catholic or who's an Anglican Christian, you know what the liturgy is like. You hear it Sunday in and Sunday out, and so there's there's there are those formal uh, components of it. He wanted to translate those formal components and those scripture readings and the creeds uh, into the common language of the people, so they could hear it in their own language. Um, and uh, then his followers, who were called the Lollards, uh, that come after him. Uh, uh, continue the work of eventually translating the entire Bible into English, but it's a translation from Latin. But what we call a Wycliffe Bible today is a translation from Latin, 
not from the original Greek and Hebrew. And the, the Lollards uh, uh, are almost, in a sense, street preachers. Yeah, yeah, they are. It's kind of a lay movement. It has an academic side to it in that the original Lollards were just the students of uh, John Wycliffe. And some of those students were international students, uh, uh, but Lollardy, as it's called, actually exists all the way up to the birth of the uh, Reformation in England. Uh, and, and matter of fact, the early English uh, theologians who, or that is, I'm talking about the early Protestant uh, English theologians were sometimes called Lollards because of their uh, they were kind of a, this, this association of this interest of the Bible in the vernacular. So someone like William Tyndale gets gets the label of being a Lollard, although he's an academic, he's a scholar. But the Lollards went international, and that brings Johann Hus into it. Yes, and that's have, the, where I was going next, so yeah, thank you. So uh, the Lollards students, to call them that, that is the students of, uh, of Wycliffe, uh, many of them are Czech, uh, and then they return to Czechoslovakia, to Prague, uh, after uh, their studies at Oxford, as Oxford's a major international university. So in returning home to Prague, uh, they bring their uh, Wycliffeite ideas with them uh, back to Prague, where at, at the time the rector of the University of Prague, what we'd call a chancellor of the university today, who is Johann Hus, uh, notices these um, Wycliffe ideas. He's very attracted to them through these, uh, again, academics, uh, students who uh, are able to articulate them in the international scholar, scholarly language of the time, which is Latin. So um, he is attracted to Wycliffe ideas and uh, particularly issues related to, again, scripture in the vernacular for the lay people. Uh, and uh, uh, and then a uh, a kind of a uh, a second look at the sacraments and the sacramental system of grace, uh, uh, and a, a, a renewed interest in restoring a, a proper sacramentalism to the church through its emphasis on baptism and holy Eucharist. There's quite a story um, uh, between uh, uh, behind the execution yeah. of, of Hus. In fact, um, uh, claims have even um, you know they had a tough time getting the fire going. And um, there was other th- other issues, but there was one that has to do with um, um, his last name um, and and being Hus, which I guess has some sort of uh, uh, relation to the word goose. And so there's been oh, yeah. y- you could read yeah. back where some people have made the thing that like the term "my goose is cooked" yeah. comes from the execution of. of of Jan Hus. Yeah, yeah, it's almost exactly a hundred years later, you know, that you also have the, that uh, Luther, uh, so because uh, Hus is, uh, let's get there, our chronology here, so so Hus will be uh, put to death uh, 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 as a result of the Council of Constance in the year 1414. Uh, and so 1414, you add a hundred years, you're 1514, and you're on the eve of uh, Luther's uh, protest. Uh, against the uh, uh, the abuse of indulgences, you know, the 95 Theses of 1517. So there we are, 103 years later, about a century. So, so the memory of Hus is still alive in German in the German-speaking world. And when Luther comes along, uh, Luther will be accused by some of his opponents as being uh, the Saxon Hus, because Luther was from uh, northeastern Germany or the, the 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 state in those days that was called Saxony. Uh, but anyway, back to Hus, he is uh, condemned uh, by the Council of Constance uh, for heresy, uh, uh, tried and convicted, and then it's the state that uh, uh, that puts him to death by uh, you know by fire. It's a horrible way to die. 
Uh, yeah, and and it's um, he has the um, uh, this wonderful thing when he is he is told to recant, and he says, "God is my witness that these things charged against me I never preached, and in the same truth yeah. of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the sayings and position of the holy doctors, I am ready to die today." Yeah, and that's interesting. Wow. You know what he's accused of? Some of it he's guilty of, and some of it he's not. So that's the. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know that's, that's part of the thing that scholars today, you know, ecclesiastical historians have to try and figure out, you know, what in all of those list of long list of accusations, all kinds of things he's accused of, you know, uh, uh, he certainly, uh, he, you know, Huss is fully Trinitarian and, you know, uh, so on, but he's accused of all kinds of things that uh, uh, some of which he's guilty of, uh, most, much of it he's, he's not, but, you know, <laughs> It's like throwing a lot of charges at a poor soul in the hopes that some, some of them, them will stick. stick. Yeah. Well, well yeah. Dr. Skullberg, I thank you so much. This was really an unbelievably quick hour that we went through yeah, a little quick. bit of history. Thank you for joining me today on Always Ready. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Well, have a great day. And, and for the rest of you that join me tomorrow, when we think about the death of the martyrs, consider this. It was once said that trying to stamp out Christianity by killing those who embrace it is like trying to kill a weed— by just cutting off the top. It continues to grow and will expand. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what the gospel is all about. Join me tomorrow as we continue our discussion, as we look at the life of Martin Luther, and then on Thursday, the life of John Calvin, right here on Always Ready.